Church, let's grab our Bibles. We're in Revelation chapter 12 this morning. We looked at verses 1 to 6 last week. We're going to continue this morning with verses 7 through 12. So again, Revelation 12, 7 through 12 is the text. When you find that, let's go ahead and stand up together as the believing body of Christ, knowing that God's word is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is the infallible word of the only true and living God. So when we hear the scriptures read to us, it's the same as if God were verbally and audibly speaking to us, such as the authority of the written scriptures. Again, Revelation 12, verse 7 is the text. Listen now to the word of God. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he defeated, he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. There are, there are any number of metaphors in the Bible to describe the Christian life. Some of them are very positive and affirming and even comforting to us, others not so much. Thinking of some of the more positive metaphors for the Christian life, we might think, for instance, of the pasture, that the Lord is our shepherd, that we shall not want, that he leads us in green pastures and still waters and such. We think also of metaphors related to family life. We have a heavenly father who loves us. And we are his children, that makes us brothers and sisters. That's a positive metaphor describing Christian intimacy. Uh, yesterday, here in the sanctuary, we celebrated a wedding, and yet a wedding is another metaphor for the Christian life, a very positive, comforting, affirming metaphor for us in Christ. And yet some of the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the Christian life are not so terribly comforting or assuring. Some of them are more adventuresome, let's say, or even arduous. We might think of the metaphor of a pilgrimage or of a journey. That's something more toilsome, perhaps. I mean, we may think about the fact that we live in exile, which is a common metaphor both in the Old and the New Testament, that we are those who are uh, drawn apart from regular society, we might say, to be a society of our own. We live as exiles in the world. And yet there's another metaphor that both the Old and the New Testament use and uses repeatedly that we're going to see quite strenuously in the text before us today, and that is the metaphor of war. Uh, we are at war, and there is a cosmic rebellion that has taken place. And you and I, whether or not you're aware of it, whether or not you want to be a participant, uh, whether or not you are often even aware of what is happening in your surroundings, yet nevertheless it is true that you and I are participants in a war. And the stakes are eternally great. 
Uh, this is not an inconsequential or minor sort of skirmish. It's a major global spiritual conflict, and the stakes are incredibly high. What we are fighting over is souls, eternal souls that will live someday forever, either in heaven or in hell. We are fighting over the glory of God, whether or not we are going to rejoice and to exalt in Him as our, as our high and lifted up King, or whether or not we are going to be in rebellion against Him as the evil forces of Satan. Moreover, there are only two sides in this war. There is that which is good and there is that which is evil. And the sides are very starkly described in our text for us today. There is the devil and his angels and there is Michael and his angels, and these two sides are in irreconcilable, constant warfare and conflict, and you're a part of it. And if you're not aware of the fact that you're in a war, then you are already losing that war. If you are not aware that you are in a war, that you're already losing, because what has happened to you is you've already been taken captive. You've already been placed in bonds. You're already far behind enemy lines. And in fact, even as I'm preaching today, It may happen to you, and I suggest that it might. The fog of war or the confusion of battle may even come over you even here as we speak. So last week we introduced the dragon or Satan and the devil, and we described him as like unto uh, a dragon or Leviathan from the Old Testament. I talked about that a little bit. We're going to have a whole Sunday school message in a couple of weeks on the dragon and Leviathan as a literary uh, trope throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the fact that, um, that he is described as a dragon does not mean that this is not a historical, literal, real, present, consequential war in which we are involved. Uh, John is no doubt drawing some of his language from the serpent, a literal historical manifestation of the devil in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. John is no doubt drawing some of his metaphors here from the literary trope of Leviathan, which again we'll cover in that Sunday school lesson in a couple of weeks. John is no doubt describing some of which he has read from the book of Daniel, which we've already quoted from here this morning. But please understand that the enemy that seeks to destroy your soul is real and he hates you and he hates your family and he hates this church and he hates this nation and he hates the kingdom of Christ. And if he could have his way with you, he would have you entirely undone and do it quickly. Please be aware of what is around you every single day. It is a war. All right. Now, just to back up a little bit and frame up the conversation this morning here, uh, we have looked at seven letters in the book of Revelation. We've looked at the seven seals. We looked at the seven trumpets. Now, from Revelation 12 to 15 or so, John kind of shifts gears a little bit. We see less of the more overt numerical counting off of the sevens, though there are still a lot of sevens in the text. You're going to see some of them this morning. And now instead, John shifts to more use of these dramatic cosmic pictures in which John brings into clarity and focus some of the enemies of the church, namely the devil and the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and the harlot. We're going to see those as we go throughout the next couple of weeks. And also, John is going to draw forth this sort of theme that your Christian life, though it is described as a pasture and a wedding and a family and other such things, it is arduous and difficult and toilsome, and in fact, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to fight. All right. 
So here's my outline this morning. It's really simple. Um, rather than give you three or four points or something like that, uh, in lieu of our, our martial text today, we're going to somewhat militarily just march through this passage and look at it verse by verse. I do want to warn you, though, that at about three quarters of the way through the sermon, and I'll, you'll know it when we get here, I promise, about three quarters of the way through the sermon today, I'm going to ask you, if you're a Christian, what is the most important question that anybody could ever ask you? You're going to know it when we get there. Okay, three quarters of the way through the sermon. So let's get our Bibles out, if you put them away, and let's march through this text faithfully and dutifully and in a soldierly fashion. We're just going to exegete this text uh, from each verse, and I'm going to call out some main points, and then we'll read the text and comment on them. Here's the first, the first major theme I want you to notice. Number one, this world is a war zone. Look at verse 7 and 8 of chapter 12. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. John mentions this war somewhat passively as he describes it. In fact, the way John brings us up in verse 7 tends to invoke more questions than it answers. Notice here the word now in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. That word now in English would seem to be something of a time marker, but I promise you in the Greek it's not there. It's just the word and. Okay? This is not a time marker here. He's not looking at his watch and saying now. John is not looking at a calendar and saying now war rose. The phrase in the Greek is something more just kind of passive like, and it happened that there was war. Or it arose that there was war. Or suddenly there was war. Or, or just simply... And battle happened, something like that. This is not a time marker here. And so, so theologians have had to do a lot of work to try to figure out, okay, so how did war start? How did this thing break out? What are, the, what are the causes of this initial warfare? And John does not really answer that question for us. He doesn't. And so that leads us to have to do a little bit of speculation. There are some theologians who would say that this war that he's talking about is the primordial rebellion that took place very early on, just uh, stages or so after the creation itself. We know that Satan and the devil and the angels, they are created beings, and so obviously this war broke out after creation because they're created themselves. But we don't specifically know when or how or how the first shot was fired. John just simply says, and there was war. Okay. Now some theologians, contrarily, would say, that this passage actually does not refer to the primordial rebellion of Satan and the fall of the the devils originally. Some people would say that this war took place chronologically more like at the cross or particularly even at the ascension of Jesus when he goes up into heaven. So there are those who hold both sides. But we have to wonder how it is then this war began in heaven and the Bible doesn't give us all the answers that we might want. I can simply tell you this, and this is about as far as I can take it. Um, We know that it happened sometime before the fall of man. Obviously, that's a no-brainer because by the time Adam and Eve fall in Genesis chapter 3, Satan has already fallen, if this in fact is the primordial rebellion, right? So we know Satan's fall is prior to the fall of man. That we can say. We can also say that this war took place by the ordained permissive will of God. Nothing happens without his ordained 
permissive will, even his decree. Now that does not mean, let's clarify here, that God is the author of evil or anything like that. In fact, we expressly deny that God does evil or is the author of evil. All we can say here is that somehow God permitted this war to take place. And if God permitted it, then it must be for his own glory. And it must be for his redemptive purposes. And it must be even somehow for your and I are good. Okay, so we can say that. Um, moreover, we can add to that that this is obviously a prideful, wicked rebellion, and even though that God permitted it to take place, yet still there is great destruction and much collateral damage, of which we will speak in a few moments here. And then again in verse 7, the mention here of Michael is also another, another reference to the book of Daniel that does tend, at least in my mind, to provoke more questions than it answers. Michael is mentioned only a few times in the whole Bible. We have a couple of mentions in the book of Daniel, one of which we've quoted from Daniel chapter 10. There's another reference to Michael as an archangel in Jude verse 9. Beyond that, it's a lot of mystery. Now, most would hold that Michael is something of an archangel who is perhaps a regional leader of the angels, one of the strongest angels, one of the leaders of the angels, let's say. But I just want you to be aware, please just note this, that there is another view that the name Michael is another name for Christ. Now, that's a minority view today, but in the time of the Reformers and the Puritans, there were quite a few who held that position. I made a video on my YouTube channel about the name of Michael, so you might want to go back and watch that. I don't have time to talk about it today, but if you're interested in that, I at least want you to be aware of the view that others take Michael to be another name for Christ. So just hold on to that and do with that what you will. Whatever else we might say about how and why this war broke out, John's point here is not to give us a blow-by-blow description of how the devil fell necessarily other than to simply remind you that this war exists and you are currently in it. That he is clear. Okay. Secondly then, let's note the casualties are great. Look at verse 9. There's no question about that. The casualties here are great. The great dragon was thrown down. We pause here to say, praise God and thank goodness, right? The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Notice how great the casualties are here. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now the goal of war, in every war, in every war, the goal is to inflict as much collateral damage as you possibly can on your enemy. And that's true whether you're winning the war or whether you're losing. That's how war is fought. War is very often a battle of attrition or or sustained damage or a, a collective destruction here. And so even though Satan is thrown down, please be, do not be dismissive of the fact that his goal is still to inflict as much collateral damage as possible. And in fact, Verse 9 indicates that there's a lot of collateral damage. Notice here that his angels, his angels, it's described here. We usually call those the demons in the Bible. His angels were thrown down with him. Now, again, you wonder to yourself, don't you? At least I'm wondering to myself, how is it that these created beings, these angels who are so wise and so beautiful and so worshipful as they're described in the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, How is it that the angels themselves could be deceived by Satan's wiles and be thrown down with him? How is that possible? And yet, uh, there's something like a third 
let's say, of the angels that fell with Satan. We get that from other texts in the book of Revelation. But a large number at least, a large number of the angels fell with Satan and became the demons. How did that happen? Well, because Satan is apparently very good at his deceptions and his manipulations. And by the way, if you're saying to yourself, well, how could angels be deceived into following Satan instead of the living and true God? Well, let me just answer that by saying to you, happens to human beings every single day. We are just as subject to the skilled manipulation and the maniacal wiles of Satan as apparently at least some of the angels. And so the collateral damage here is great. Moreover, that's not the only collateral damage here that's mentioned in verse 9. Notice here that Satan is called the deceiver of the whole world. That's a lot, right? That's a lot. And one of the unfortunate facts about the book of Revelation, although it is very encouraging at times, is that as we've seen in other texts, many, many souls will be tragically lost in this war. There will be those who are lost. And the Bible does not mince words about that. The most important thing you can do here is to make sure that you yourself and your loved ones know the gospel very well. Okay? Know it. Love it. Trust in him. You do not want to be one of the deceived like the whole world, right? And the demons who are also likewise deceived by our satanic enemy. Third, Notice here that the enemy's tactics are brutal. This is war. How so? Look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. His brutal tactics are primarily accusation now do you say you say to yourself well how can that be bad well trust me accusation can be very bad i could accuse you of something right now that could ruin your life probably you could do the same for me accusation does not have to be true to be extremely damaging even ruinous right i'll just point out the word now here in this verse look at verse 10 again now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. I do want to make clear here, this word is a time indicator. Okay? Just as now was actually just the word and, somewhat passively in verse 7, war happened in heaven. Here though in verse 10, this is the time chronological marker word here in the Greek. John is saying now, presently, cur- currently, right now, this very day, he is saying. And it's true then, it's also true now. The salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. That much we can say right now. Okay, But Satan is the accuser of our brothers. Let's think about accusation for just a few moments here. How does Satan wage his war? Primarily through accusation. You're probably already aware that the, the word uh, devil and the word Satan, they both, they're, they're both, uh, one's Hebrew, the other's Greek. They, they both have the, the, uh, the implication of like liar or deceiver or slanderer, translated literally. And that's what, that's what he does. Okay. Question, to whom does he slander? Answer is right there in the text. He slanders us before God. But praise be to God 
that we have the doctrine of justification by faith, right? Because it cannot work against us who believe. What is the doctrine of justification by faith? You have to know this. Please know your Christian doctrine. Justification by faith is that God has imputed to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ such that when God looks at us, though we are still sinners, simul hustus et peccator, says Martin Luther, right? Yet God regards us as having the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Though we are sinners and we continue to sin and we have sinned in the past, yet because of Christ, because of his righteousness, because of Christ's perfect life, imputed to us, that means to say, reckon to us by grace through faith. When God looks at us, he no longer regards us for our sin or our rebellion, but instead God looks at us as though we had the righteousness of Christ. So justification by faith alone is your defense against the accusations and the slander of Satan. But I will tell you this, and I can compliment the enemy here, at least in one thing. Okay? Let's at least reckon with, with the enemy's resilience. Because though he has no power to accuse us before our God because of justification by faith, by faith alone, yet we can at least say this about Satan, he doesn't give up very easily. He is extraordinarily resilient. And so if his accusations about us before God fail, what else will he do? He will, act, he will, he will send his accusations against us to one another which is why Satan is so keenly interested in dividing the church, constantly dividing the church. He will accuse you to you, and me to her, and him to him. Satan will constantly accuse us to our own brothers and sisters. And that's why we're so prone to listen to lies and gossip and slander, and so curiously so. And he does it all the time, and we fall for it again and again. And so churches are maligned, Reputations are besmirched, character is assassinated, and we are also foolish, aren't we, for gobbling it up so greedily. And that's how the church gets weak. That's how the church gets weak. And if that doesn't work, then Satan will take his accusations about us to the unbelieving world, where once again he is very pleased to malign who we are and what we believe as Christians. He's always done that. Um, walk with me over to the first century AD. Do you know what Satan said about the Christians in the first, second, and third century? There was, there was rumors about Christians, and you can look it up in a good church history book, that the, the Romans, um, they actually said about Christians two things primarily. First, that Christians were atheists which is ironic because we're believers in God, the only true and living God. But one of the earliest slanders about Christians was that we were atheists because we didn't worship Zeus and we didn't worship Apollo and we didn't worship Mars and we most certainly were not going to worship the emperor, for goodness sakes. And so they called us atheists. Not true, but it worked. Satan also, uh, through the lies of unbelievers, accused Christians of being cannibals. Did you know that? It's historically true. Why would Christians be accused of being cannibals? Why is that? Well, because we have the Lord's Supper. And because on the Lord's Day, when we gather together at the communion table, uh, we say something to the effect of, this is my body given for you. Take and eat all of it. And so 
that was actually one of the lies and slanders against Christians that they were cannibals. Believe it or not, it worked for a while. And though uh, those two charges are not common anymore today, you know exactly what Satan says about believers to the unbelieving world today, right? You know what he says. We're haters. We're bigots. We're phobic. None of it's true. We love God. We love Christ. We love people that are different than us. We love unbelievers. The thing, though, is that we insist on holiness. And if that's our fault, that we insist on holiness, if that's our fault then we'll own it and we'll receive whatever comes to us because of our beliefs in Christian holiness. Fourth, we are the combatants in this war and there are no non-participants. There are no peace treaties and there's no ceasefires. Look at, look at verse 11. We're the, we're, the com, we're the combatants here. Look at verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Okay, question. Who's they in verse 11? Look carefully. Who's they? They in verse 11 is the brothers in verse 10. Right? Grammatically? Yes? They in verse 11 is the brothers in verse 10. We are the combatants in this war. Okay, now... A uh, little sidetrack here. Going, going back to 1 Samuel 17, when David goes out to fight Goliath, you remember this scene? Uh, David goes to the valley of, uh, of Eli, I think it is, if I'm not mistaken. And his brothers are there. And Goliath is there, and he's mocking, and he's taunting the, the Israelites, and the Philistines are shouting, and the Israelites are scared. And David shows up. Do you remember what David's brother, his own brother, said to him? He said, you're just here to watch. You're just here to watch. But, but listen, David, David didn't come to watch. You know why? Because there's no, there are no spectators. And the reason I know that David didn't come to watch is because he brought a slingshot with him. He came to fight. And when, uh, when Goliath came out, there was one man who was courageous enough to run out there with five smooth stones, and that was David. He did not come as a spectator. And in the arena of this particular war about which we are talking today, you and I, please understand, we are on the floor of the arena. We are not on the stands for this. And there are ways that we combat the enemy here, and they're given to us in this verse, verse 11. This is how we fight. Look, three things here. First, by the blood of the Lamb. That is foremost and first. The way we survive, the way we fight, the way we endure, the way we wage combat is by the blood of the Lamb. It is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, His life, His death, his resurrection, just as the Israelites, remember this, they marked the door frames of their homes with the blood of the Lamb, and so the destroying angel passed over them. So also, you and I, we mark our lives with the blood of Jesus Christ. This is how we survive the fight. Otherwise, we will be laid waste. Amen. Okay? We will be laid waste. So we fight by the blood of the Lamb. Secondly, notice this too, and by the word of their testimony. This is how we fight. We fight by testifying. And we testify in two ways. First, with words. Second, with our lives. And those two things 
have to be in absolute concert with one another. What we say about Christ, what we say about his word, what we say about our faith, it must be in absolute concert with the integrity of your character. That is your testimony. Okay? We're not talking about jailhouse conversion stories, but if that's true for you, that's great. Praise God. We're not talking about elaborating on the sawdust trail or anything like that. We're talking about the fact that we testify to the blood of the Lamb and not only that, but your life, your character, the way you carry yourself. It must be in comportment with the faith that you profess. Otherwise, again, you will be laid waste in this war. You have no hope. But then thirdly, look at this. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, But then we have to be honest about this verse here, verse 11. Look at this. For they love not their lives even unto death. There is the testimony of martyrdom brought up here in this verse. You say, what are the martyrs? Those are those people who lived so terribly long ago. Right? The martyrs, those are those people who live so terribly far away. Right? The martyrs, those are those people whose stories we mildly exaggerate for the sake of devotional piety. Right? The martyrs, those are the people who loved in the who lived in the rugged biblical landscapes of the ancient world, but today we live in the modern world, right? Let me ask you a question. Are you ready to die for Christ? If you can't answer that question, this war will be most troublesome to you. It could be that 10 years from now, um, we will tell the stories of Peter and Paul and Perpetua and Tyndale and Jim Elliot and others of the martyrs, but it could very well be that 10 years from now, some of our stories will be told amongst the martyrs. Let me ask you again. I'm only going to ask one more time. Are you ready to die for Christ? might be the most important question you can ask another believer. Fifth, victory is assured, but the battle still rages. Look at that in verse 12. They're both true. Victory is assured, but the battle still rages. Therefore, verse 12, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So even as ultimate victory is promised here in verse 12, that Christ and Michael and the angels and the saints will ultimately be victorious. There's no question about that. It's one of the main themes of this passage. It's one of the reasons it's in the Bible. 
but so that we would be assured of the ultimate victory of God through Christ. Yet nevertheless, in verse 12, there is a simultaneous truth in here, and that is that the devil is still of great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Understand that a cornered beast is a dangerous beast, right? A wounded fighter is a dangerous fighter. A wounded animal is a dangerous animal. And Satan is a wounded combatant. He's been thrown down, but he rages especially because he knows that his time is short. Now, praise God. This is a victory text for Christians. Satan is, in fact, a seven-time loser here in this text. This is another hidden seven. You wouldn't notice this unless you're counting. But let's just count them up here. How many times does Satan lose in this text? One, he is unable to destroy the Christ child in 12 verse 2. Number two, he is eluded by the woman as she flees to the desert in verse 6. Number three, he is cast down from heaven in verse 8. Number four, his accusations fail against believers because of justification by faith. That's in verse 10. He is stung repeatedly by the faithful endurance of the saints in verse 11. He again is eluded by the woman who escapes by way of the eagle in verse 14. That's sixth. And then seventh, his attempts to destroy the woman fail again. And we mentioned last week that she represents believers in verse 16. Satan is a seven-time loser in this war. But he's still a dangerous beast. Still a dangerous beast. I just want to end with a, with a little word of encouragement for you this morning. I know this has been a little bit intense, and rightly so. We must be intense with intense passages, yes? Uh, turn back with me to, uh, to Daniel 10. This was our supplementary text for this morning. I want to read this, though, again, because I, I find this to be such an encouraging word in Daniel 10 here. Now, remember, Daniel is himself in the war so to speak. Daniel himself has been maligned by the tyrannical authoritarian powers of his day, namely Babylon. Daniel himself has received some of these stark, alerting, even disconcerting visions, very similar to what John has seen. And yet look at this word of encouragement that comes in verse 19 of Daniel 10. He said to me, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong, and be of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. And believer, um, though we spoke of some very grave matters today, I want you to know that every single one of these words is true of you as well. You are greatly loved. You shall fear not. Peace will be with you. Be, of strong, be of strong and of good courage. And you will be strengthened by the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's grab